0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello, and welcome to Scholarly, a podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal. My name is Rachel Quaney. I'm a pulmonary critical care and sleep clinician educator at University of Colorado. Today, we will be discussing the ATS Scholar article, Gender Disparities in Critical Care Procedure Training of Internal Medicine Residents. I'm joined by two authors of this paper, Dr. Lakshmi Santos and senior author, Dr. Jackie Desjardins. Dr. Jackie Desjardins is finishing her cardiology fellowship at UCSF and embarking on her advanced heart failure fellowship, also at UCSF. Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, Associate Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care at UCSF, serves as the APD for both the Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship and the Internal Medicine APD, as well as many other... I am absolutely honored to have the two of them join me here today, but I would also like to highlight the team that they put together for this paper. It is a multidisciplinary and multi-specialty collaboration, teamwork between two institutions, Mayo and UCSF, and I think this teamwork approach really brought us to this great paper that we have today, so I am absolutely excited. Welcome to the two of you.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks so much for excited to be here. Perfect. So, first quick disclaimer and a clarification. This is a study on gender. The data collected was based upon self-reported gender identification, but during the study period, residency applications provided a binary option for gender, male or female. We acknowledge that this therefore cannot be a complete picture of the gender disparities that exist particularly for our non-binary, gender non-conforming, or transgender trainees. This data will be spoken about in the terms of male, female, men, or women, but I want to acknowledge that this is not a complete picture. So let's jump in. I would love to know how this Framework came to be, this amazing team and this paper came to be. What was the initial impetus to start this?
0: Yeah, i can I can take that one. So this is jackie. i be, I became interested in studying this topic as a second year internal medicine resident. So I was in internal medicine residency at UCSF. I was interested in procedural subspecialties and considering pulmonary critical care and considering cardiology. Obviously, I ended up in cardiology. But one of the main deterrents at the time was the procedural aspects of these specialties. And I remember feeling like I I didn't have a lot of procedural experience and I was not confident in my procedural skills. And so I remember kind of being on a Mickey rotation and talking to my co-residents about about our procedural skills and doing central lines. And I remember talking to some of my male co-residents and in one case in particular, my co-resident who's now a a cardiologist as well, he was just so confident in his procedural skills and so confident in his ability to do things. And it, it stood in stark contrast to where I felt I was at the same level of training. Even though we were interested in the same specialties, we had had similar experiences. And so that got me kind of thinking, you know, how are we, how are people getting procedural training? Has my training really been so much different than his or is his confidence level just different than mine? And then I started thinking, you know, whether or not gender might be influencing this. And I started talking to some of my co-residents and I was surprised that the responses varied drastically. I kind of asked people I was working with, do you think that gender is influencing how many procedures you do in the ICU? And some people would say, absolutely not. I think everybody's having the same training experience. And then other people would say, particularly women, would say, absolutely yes. I think that I am doing fewer procedures than my male co-residents. And I thought that was pretty interesting, just anecdotally. And so we wanted to kind of study in a more rigorous fashion, and that's how this this paper came about and the idea for this came about.
1: That's really interesting, and I think it'll tie into things we chat about later with the qualitative part of this study. Lakshmi, as from your perspective as a faculty member, was this something that you were thinking about, aware of before this, or was this a new concept to you?
2: Absolutely, I think my experience in training very much echoed Jackie's experiences and then as I became more in the supervisory role of procedures first as a pulmonary critical care fellow and then as a faculty member this disparity the gender disparity and the influence on procedural volume and procedural allocation became even clearer and starker to me whereas back in the day I had experienced those same wonders or questions that Jackie had talked about And then as a supervisor, I noticed stark differences in the confidence and competence of different trainees and a stark reminder sometimes of the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. And it made me want to study this more. So when Jackie approached me with first the quantitative data documenting the hunches that we had shared all along. I said to Jackie, this is amazing. We have got to do a qualitative exploration of these data because this the pairing of the numbers went from the quantitative and the why from the qualitative will be so powerful in just adding proof that this is more than just a feeling, but actually supported by the evidence.
1: That's fantastic. And I think that's a perfect segue into just explaining for those that may not have read the article yet exactly what your study entails, because it was a mixed methods, explanatory sequential study. So starting with the quantitative, starting with the data, and then designing the qualitative study to dive into that data, to explain it, to give you the richness, the depth, and the understanding that is the reason have qualitative studies right we get these raw numbers and then how do we make sense of this how do we figure out where to go next whether it's in research or medical education and the qualitative part was beautifully designed in order to help give you that full picture both parts of this of that the mix the quantitative and the qualitative are both in this article that has been published and it really provides that sort of richness that expands on what your Anecdote, your experience, and then the data ended up showing. Do you want to talk through a little bit of how you designed this study and thought about those two parts?
0: Yeah, sure. I can start with maybe the quantitative analysis, because that's what we did first, and then and then we can talk about how that led into the qualitative analysis. So we had this question, and up front we kind of had an a priori hypothesis that there would be gender disparities in ICU procedural volume, but not in procedures that were performed as part of a structured procedural rotation. So at our institution, residents primarily perform procedures in two contexts. One is in the ICU during their critical care rotations, and those procedures tend to be less structured in terms of their allocation, supervision requirements, etc., and then the second is during a structured procedural rotation where they perform hospital, usually hospital medicine procedures, such as paracenteses, lumbar punctures, et cetera. So uh, we had an, a priori hypothesis that there might be more disparities in the ICU procedural volume, possibly because of the unstructured nature, possibly because of a lack of representation of faculty. And we're not, we weren't sure exactly the causes, but that was the perception going in. So we had this inherent comparison within institution between structural procedure service and ICU. And then we did the same comparison at Mayo, which has a similar setup with a structured procedural service and ICU procedures. And we kind of thought about it, the most robust way to analyze the qualitative data would be to actually extract procedure notes directly from the electronic medical record and not rely on procedural self-report, which is how the majority of the literature has done this type of analysis in the past. But we did, so we directly extracted the procedure notes. We also extracted resident schedules from AMION, which is our physician, physician scheduling program. And we kind of simply compared the number of procedures controlling for the time spent on each rotation between men and women in the hospital medicine structured procedural service, in the ICU, and then at those institutions in those contexts. And I'm happy to chat about the results, but essentially at one institution, we found that there were gender disparities in procedural critical care volume, so in the ICU, but that wasn't the case in the structured procedural service, and that wasn't the case at the other institution. And so it seemed that gender disparities in procedural volume were context and institution-specific, and that led to kind of just more questions about why that might be the case and what the underlying factors were, and that led us into the qualitative analysis. And I can let Lexmi as an expert in qualitative analysis and really helped out a lot with designing this, so I can let her chat about what we did there.
2: Thanks so much Jackie. I think this is a really beautifully designed study where the quantitative methods really inform the qualitative methods. And so when it comes to qualitative research particularly about gender and disparities, one of the things that we thought about first rigorously was was this study question better suited to one-on-one interviews or focus groups? And if we're doing focus groups, are they better suited to sort of same-sex focus groups or kind of a focus group with both genders? And in consulting with the literature that has primarily been done in actually surgical training and gender disparities, surgical training and gender identity, we really made a decision that focus groups would be superior to one-on-one interviews to get more of that discussion, more of that dialogue, more of that, wow, I felt that experience. You felt that too, interesting. More of that generative content rather than a one-on-one interview where it's a little bit more closed. And the the same-sex groups... Similarly, we were to provide sort of this sort of safe space, if you will, to discuss these concepts that might be a little bit uncomfortable, might be a little bit charged, might be a little bit sensitive to people. And we wanted people to really express how they truly felt and feel safe in that and not really hold back from how they really felt. And I think that if you're reading this paper, if you don't have time to read it, just looking at the quotes that have been pulled out in this paper is really fascinating. And you know, this paper has kind of gone viral on social media. And I think it's because the quotes resonated so deeply with people. And I think it's just another example of how qualitative analysis, getting at that why, can really explore at the, the underlying reasons for how these disparities ended up to be how they are so that we can more proactively tackle them.
1: That's fantastic. And a really good insight into how something this big of a topic, this complex of a topic can at least be broken down into little bits to start getting the data, start getting the information that we need to see what the issues are in order to better address them. And so kudos to you and your entire team for doing all of this. I I think that one thing that Dr. Santos said was really interesting to me just now is that generative dialogue in the focus groups. And I definitely think that, I mean, that is Definitely a benefit in qualitative analysis for how you can really ensure saturation and really sort of mitigate the leading that can often happen when you have the one-on-one interviews. And so having experts in qualitative analysis, are, like Dr. Santos, are really important for studies like this so you can best get the data that you that you should get, not necessarily what you think you're going to get, but pull all the accurate themes from these trainees. Just a logistical question, the two institutions, did you have representatives from the same institution lead the focus groups or cross, across the two institutions?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. We did it with the same institution. So it was actually my myself and Dr. Santosh who led the focus groups at CSS. And then it was Dr. Olson and Dr. Kelm who led the focus groups at Mayo.
2: I think you're right though, that it would have been better prospectively to design that we interview residents from the other site. However, because this is a sequential study where we first did it at UCSF and then did it at Mayo next to sequentially to see if these themes are similar or different. That is why the interviewers ended up the way they did. I think if way back years ago he had designed this initially as a multi-site study, it would have been wiser, you know, for next time and for future studies and future med ed researchers listening in, to do kind of cross-site pollination with who led the focus groups. There's another study that I'm doing right now that's a qualitative longitudinal study where we're doing exactly that. It's a multi-site study where we specifically are doing interviews for the other institution to avoid any bias. Yeah. Oh,
0: go ahead. Oh, Thanks. I was just gonna say one of the other things that I liked about our design is that similar with the quantitative analysis, with the qualitative analysis, we had an inherent internal control in some ways because we, were com- we asked the same questions to the focus groups about ICU type procedures and procedures done on the structured procedural service. And it was very apparent in the focus groups that the answers were completely different, suggesting that the context in which residents were performing procedures was really dictating their response to the answers and less so how we set up the focus groups and, and that we had the same institution and some of those factors. So we did like that we had kind of this internal control that we could compare against each other because we we're asking the same questions about both contexts.
1: Absolutely, and I don't necessarily think that having your focus group leaders at the same institution is necessarily an inherent weakness. I think it's just something to be aware of that people that don't understand qualitative research and trying to interpret studies need to know that that's a trade-off as all things in research, there are trade-offs. You probably got a more nuanced view from because you were able to know the culture and know the details of the what the procedural rotation are at your institution. But the trade-off is then maybe a little a worry about honesty or forthrightness, whereas if you did a cross-pollination, you would have a trade-off there. It would absolutely be inverse. So it's just an important thing for our listeners who aren't as familiar with qualitative to be aware of and, and to be aware of if you're designing your future qualitative studies. Jackie, you mentioned the procedural rotation, and I would love to get a little more info on that because I think... One, it provides some really interesting nuance to all of this data and then leads into the what we, next steps, but also because these don't exist everywhere and the format can vary widely. So I would love to know more about the procedural rotation at UCSF, roughly how long it's been in place to sort of figure out if it was new or established, and then how the procedures are allocated.
0: Yeah, great question. Yeah. So we have a the structured procedural service. It's a two week rotation. Every single intern at UCSF rotates on this, and every single intern has that dedicated time. The way it works is there's one procedural attending who's a hospitalist, and any parasynthesis, um or lumbar punctures in the hospital, those are the main procedures that are done by the service, sometimes arthrosynthesis, but not not as commonly. Any procedures that are done they in the hospital, they consult our procedural service. We have a specific pager, and they're do- those procedures are performed by a, a medicine intern with supervision by a hospital medicine physician. And this service has been in place for many years, since before I was a resident at UCSF, which was now like, you know, seven years ago. And it's actually, there's actually, if people are interested in learning more, They've actually published separate papers about our procedure service, and they found that it improves patient satisfaction and resident confidence and performance of procedures. So people can read more about that, but it's in place for some time. And basically, they're on the rotation. There's usually two interns with that hospital medicine supervisor, and they usually just switch off doing procedures. And so the allocation is structured in that you know, you're just alternating with one other person doing multiple procedures every day.
1: Fantastic, that's really helpful because clearly there was a difference between the ICU procedural opportunities versus the procedure team. And so hearing that it truly is just a, there is a schedule and it's alternating, gives a little bit of idea of how that may vary from what a normal ICU rotation often is, which I guess I can't speak for everyone, but in the institutions I've been at, it's slight hodgepodge of who's available and who's ready and who has the time and all of of these other factors that as you talk about in the paper, lead to probably some issues. So do you want to chat a little bit about the results that you found
0: between
1: the procedure rotation and the ICU rotation at program A?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, One other thing I'll just highlight well, which isn't really emphasized in the paper, but I personally found very interesting, is that the um, distribution, if you look at the primary data and just do like a histogram, the distribution of the data is vastly different between the structured procedure service and the ICU procedure. So on the structured procedure service, it's basically a, the number of procedures performed by, per person kind of is a, a normal distribution. There's like a mean and there's some scatter around the mean, whereas on in the ICU, it's a very skewed distribution in the sense that there's a few people performing lots of procedures, but a lot of people performing very few procedures. And so inherently, the way the procedures are being distributed in those two contexts is very different, and you see different distributions in the data. So in Program A, Basically, we we had data on 181 residents. They performed a total of over 3,000 procedures, the majority of which were done on the procedure service, and then they had 646 procedures on ICU rotations, and on average, women performed 1.4 procedures per month in the ICU, whereas men performed almost double that at 2.65 procedures per month, and that was a statistically significant difference. And so if we look at how they performed on the structured procedure rotation, there was no significant differences, and I think the p-value was not even close to significant. So there was no identifiable quantitative gender differences in the number of procedures being performed on the structured procedure service, but there was in the ICU at Program A. And I can go on to Program B, too, but...
1: I think that is part... One part of exactly what you had mentioned earlier that this data, these procedures are context and institution specific. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you found at program B.
0: Yeah, so at program B for the quantitative results, and then we can talk about the qualitative results, but we had data on 218 residents, 40% of which were women. And they overall performed fewer procedures, uh, 926 procedures. And on average, women performed procedures per month on ICU rotation, whereas men performed 0.54 procedures per month on average, and that difference was not statistically significant difference. There was also no differences in the procedures that were performed while on their structured procedural service.
1: Yeah, so there's clearly a difference between the ICU, the critical care and the procedure service. There's also a difference between the institutions. Another aspect that I think is kind of interesting just to give nuance to this as well is the different, the data between the residents and their specialty between the programs. So for those of you that haven't read this, table one has some really interesting characteristics of the cohort. And so Program A, the one that did have a statistically significant difference in the procedure volume per based on gender, actually had more women than men as far as their residents. 52% of the, of the enrolled Residents in this trial were are women, but at the institution that did not have a statistically significant difference between genders for procedures, there was a marked disparity. Only forty percent of the their residents are women, and so I think it, this speaks to something that's probably outside of the con, the realm of this discussion, and we could do a lot more on it. But the, just that, DEI is important because. The diversity, the representation alone is not enough to control for all of the things that happen once you're once you've matriculated residents into or trainees into your program. There's so much more that needs to be done beyond the recruitment phase. So I thought that was a really interesting point. And then I also thought there still was an interesting variation at program B, again, the one that did not have the st- statistically significant difference between the genders with procedure volume, there was a statistically significant difference between the trainees that went on to do a fellowship in cardiology or pulmonary critical care. So there's so much more to the story that I'm sure our authors will tell us more about beyond just the actual procedure volume. And I think that's where the qualitative part is really amazing to give more depth to this.
2: You're exactly right. I think you astutely pointed out that there are some things that, you know, the paper really focuses on procedural training and gender disparities, but we've done kind of similar work on gender disparities and racial ethnic disparities in palm critical care medicine and the subspecialties in general. So actually an ATS scholar back in 2020, Dr. Jen Babek, who's one of our ID faculty, and I published a paper on diversity in the pulmon critical care medicine pipeline. And at that point, we actually found out exactly, as you said, striking disparities between sort of the I am resident gender breakdown and a big drop-off in female fellows when you're going from the step of I am residency to palm critical care fellowship. And that similar drop-off when it went to underrepresented in medicine fellows as well. So these concepts, again, can't be disentangled. And there's going to be often as we call it sort of a cascading or a snowballing of different disparities and systemic factors that influence these disparities. But for the purposes of this paper, you know, heading back to this paper, when we did the qualitative analysis, what we really found was three main themes related to gender and really access to procedural training and residency, and those related to procedural self-identity. So do I see myself as a quote proceduralist? The second one related to procedural self-advocacy. So that idea that you kind of have to, quote, fight to get your lines in. And then the third theme that we found is about team dynamics around procedural training. And again, if you want to look at one figure, the table two is a great figure which has these representative quotes talking about these starkly different terms in which the male and female residents talked about their experiences and their self-perceived identity as proceduralists and their team dynamics that they experienced that really resonated with a lot of our readers.
1: Were there particular quotes that resonated with you that you would like to take this time to highlight?
2: Definitely one that sticks out in my mind that actually made my jaw drop when I first heard it was this quote from a male resident who said, from my experience, lines beget more lines, procedures beget more procedures, and you become kind of known as the procedural person. So the nurses or fellows will seek you out because they want something done quickly. And that really speaks to that concept of that I shared and the quantitative data that Jackie pointed out that there are some people who get sort of a reputation as saying, I'm a proceduralist quote. And that reputation is something that it can be cultivated but also there might be some implicit bias in that reputation as well of who do we think of in our mind is more likely to be a proceduralist. And that's how you lead to amplifying of these barriers in many ways. I think that that line struck, struck out to me. And I think another quote that stuck out to me was about how interns and residents really felt like they had to fight to get procedures, fight to get lines, fight to get respects, and talking about these really subtle team dynamics. You know, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but one of the ways that I try to mitigate that when I'm ICU attending that I've done ever since I was a fellow was on rounds every day. I have this kind of mini preamble on the first day, and I talk about, you know, these are my these are my expectations of you. This is how I like to hear my one liners and my plans, etc. But also, let's just talk for one minute about implicit bias and diversity, equity, inclusion in the ICU, and we talk about, you know, patient microaggressions may or may not occur. And how even within our own team, I want to make sure it's a safe space. And one of the things that the literature shows is that there are gender and racial disparities in procedures. So the way that I'm going to try to proactively ensure that everyone on our team gets a fair shot is that I'm going to approach everyone one-on-one at the beginning of the rotation, see where everyone's at, see where everyone's coming from, and try to explicitly make a plan for the day of who is, quote, up next. And that proactive planning, which just takes one extra minute to say, who's on deck for today? Just like who's on long call, who's on short call, who's leaving early? Just that little explicit planning, just like we saw in the structured procedural rotation, can actually mitigate some of these disparities, rather than getting into a crash line situation when you say, uh, who wants to do this line? And invariably, those disparities might get perpetuated. So that's one quick, you know, one minute way in which I try to proactively safeguard against getting into that unstructured procedural allocation environment.
1: I think that's all fantastic. I echo your sentiment that that quote of lines, beget lines, just was a wealth of information and insight. And it made me think of so many different references and it just really highlights a lot of the issues that we have and a lot of why this study is so important. So thanks again for doing it. I think, Lexhmi, you said something wonderful about how you as an educator start your time on service with expectations like most good educators do and being very cognizant of that. And it made me think of another quote, representative quote from the paper that says, Your job shouldn't be to convince the fellow or the attending that you're smart enough or good enough or read up enough to do a procedure. It should be how do we get our interns more procedures, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was really striking because that ties in, even though it was analyzed under self-identity, I think it also goes into the self-advocacy theme that you also pulled out too is, unfortunately, it shouldn't be as this, as this learner astutely said, but unfortunately self-advocacy ends up playing a big part into the the allocation of procedures as well.
0: Yeah. I want to echo that so much because that is something I've come to appreciate even more first doing this paper. And then now as a cardiology fellow, I'm often taking home call in a position where I'm being called in to help with procedures and the difference, the variety, the, 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 you know, difference between residents in terms of this self-advocacy piece is so stark sometimes. And you see some learners who you come in and they say, you know, like I'd like to learn how to do the procedure, but the patient's really sick and I have another patient I need to take care of and I have a family I need to call and the goals of care discussion to be had. And then there's some residents who you come in and they're like, I'm ready to do this procedure. Let's get started. I want to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's I wish it wasn't down to confidence and self-advocacy for these training experiences, because I think a lot of people who maybe don't first identify as confident proceduralists, such as myself when I was a resident, can become very capable and excellent cardiologists or pulmonary and critical care physicians. But your ability to identify as a proceduralist very quickly in training with relatively minimal experience begets your experiences and allows you to have that confidence to have more of those experiences and greater confidence going forward. And so I think we need to find ways to not rely on an individual's ability to self-advocate for their training opportunities.
1: Absolutely. I think this is a great time to go into sort of the next stage, which would be what we're take homes, next steps, where we go from here, but I'll defer to you. If there's other things about the data, the results that you would like to highlight, please feel free to share.
0: Yeah, I can go first. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway from this paper I took away is the importance of being thoughtful and structured if you're trying to have an educational program and meet competencies. So if one, if your goal is to have produce trainees, who can perform procedures well or have at the very least had opportunities to be able to have a robust procedural experience and the confidence to be able to pursue subspecialty and procedural fields if that is what they should, so choose to do, then you need to structure that experience. When we leave it up to subjective, you know, who's available, who's going to step up, who ta- who's the loudest in the room, then certain types of people will get those procedural experiences, that procedural training, that confidence. And then I, you know, this wasn't studied specifically in this paper, but I think it may influence their interest in cardiology or pulmonary critical care. But if we can focus our our procedural training more like what we do on the structured procedure service, where allocation is more structured, All residents have access to this training. They don't need to self-advocate to get it. They have good supervision. I think that it provides a a better experience for the residents. It's more safe for the patients, and it provides a more equitable training environment than what we have currently in a lot of ICUs.
2: I think to amplify that, I think a common misunderstanding or critique of this paper and this concept is oh why are you trying to make sure that all residents get more procedures in an era of increasing subspecialization or you know referrals to quaternary tertiary care center procedural volume is overall going down and to that i would reply that you know the authors on this piece we're not advocating that all residents should do a billion more procedures rather we're advocating as jackie said so nicely that the opportunities to get further procedural training are equitable and structured and that when opportunities arise that there's an explicit discussion about them rather than people falling back on their own implicit bias.
1: I really like that. Just you could look at the decreasing numbers of procedures as our medicine has changed and take it and view that as that's a limited resource or you can be intentional, look at it and say, it is a precious resource. We need to be very, very intentional as medical educators with what we do with this now, even more so than we used to have to be. I love that. So the ICU rotations are never going to look exactly like a procedural rotation because there are competing interests. There are so many other things. What? Ideas, and granted, these haven't they, these don't have to have been studied. But what general ideas have you either implemented at your sites, considered, or talked to others about ways to help with this going forward?
0: Yeah, some of the things that we've already done is just publicizing these results so that people are a little bit more attention intentional when they think about it. Just that extra second to think. When when I'm a cardiology fellow, I'm tired. It's the middle of the night, and I need to supervise a procedure just being a little bit more thoughtful that gender does influence who is doing this procedure and kind of surveying the situation and the whole team and making sure that there's an effort to be equitable. That's number one. Second, although there's you know never gonna be exactly the same rotation in the ICU, we can do things like Dr. Santosh has already mentioned what she does with her team about just making the allocation a little bit more equitable and structured. And then one of the things that is talked about in the paper as one of the factors that perpetuates this is a lack of supervision. When there's less structure, less supervision, I think the disparities can perpetuate even further. And so we've actually, at the time that this paper was done, we had a sign-off requirement and then Prior and then then residents could do procedures without supervision if they had done enough. But in part because of this paper and as well as other patient safety concerns, I think now we actually require every central line to be supervised by a fellow at UCSF. So that's a kind of a tangible policy change that we've made. Anything else you have to add? Jackie, that's a
1: great point. Awareness. Awareness is the first step. I mean, I think of the the quote often attributed to Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So awareness is really Mm -hmm. the first part of things like this and being intentional like Lakshmi is already doing. I love that you mentioned supervision because I actually forgot. I would love to talk about that in a little bit more detail real quick because I think it's so important. So we talked a little bit about the statistical differences that we've seen between program A and program B. And so one of the really good discussion points that I would encourage people to read in the paper, talking about why is this? What's the difference between them? And one thing that came up was supervision. So program A, with the statistical difference between genders and procedural opportunities, had a criteria of you have preference. Five procedures, you're signed off, you're able to do it. And then the other program, Program B, did not. And so all these procedures were always observed. And I thought there were some really interesting discussion points that I hope to do justice to. And I say basically at a certain point, if there's sort of an embarrassment or a Um, Hesitancy to say I still need supervision when you feel like your colleagues don't that's going to make you less likely to advocate that self advocacy that confidence that then becomes this spiral, so I really. Loved that. And it was interesting because as I'm reading the paper, going through the quantitative first, those are the questions I was coming up with, right? Why is there the difference between A and B? And then you bring me to the qualitative and all of a sudden I'm putting it together like, yes, that, that represents my experience, my anecdotal experiences as well. And that's one of the many ways I thought this paper was just so beautifully done and written to really flush that out.
0: Yeah, super. I think that was a, a big difference between the two institutions. And I think that's actually changed a lot at Program A, in part because of this paper and the the need for supervision. First of all, I think it's it's safer for patients to have these procedures supervised. And and that, that's incredibly important. And I think the threshold is so much lower. We even did try to do, we didn't put this in the paper because it, it was not powered to analyze this, but we even tried to look at like procedures performed at night versus day. And there was maybe some suggestion, not statistically significant subgroup analysis that even the disparities might be even more pronounced at night when there might be less supervision. And so I think that goes—that kind of goes with what my personal perceptions had been and what the qualitative analysis shows that supervision is really important to lowering the barrier for people to have to, not have to self-advocate to get procedures and making a more equitable and structured learning environment.
2: I think a meta point to add to all of this is the the big picture of why, right? Why did we embark on this project? Why do we do medical education research? It's because we felt something. We saw something. It generated a question in us. It inspired us to look into the data. It inspired us to seek qualitative data, and experiences from others at our institution and others others at a different institution. And then when we found the results, what did we do? We didn't just publish the data, but we really took these data back to the division chiefs, the fellowship directors. We presented at cardiology faculty meeting, at critical care faculty meeting, to the fellows and faculty to really raise awareness because the ultimate why, why do we do this is to create change and to advocate for change. And as you said, you know, disinfectant is the best, sunlight is the best form of disinfectant and first raising awareness of disparities is the best step towards advocating towards change. And once people were aware of this to say, wow, we have data on these, this again is in the larger context of literature on gender disparities and procedures and, you know, beyond just our fields, that really spoke to people, it really resonated with people and I think that that's what drives ultimately culture change and organizational change. And of course, we'll continue to work on the upstream drivers, as I mentioned, of diversifying the home critical care and cardiology workforce to begin with. And I think tackling this complex problem of gender equity from multiple different angles, using data, using experience, and using research to drive advocacy is something that I'm really passionate about that. I think that this paper has been immensely successful at achieving.
1: Absolutely. I echo everything you've said and strongly support this. Part of why I wanted to highlight this article on this podcast. It's so important and so well done. So as we wrap up, I want to thank you both. I also want to highlight your esteemed co-authors, Drs. Emily Olson, David Sanborn, Timothy Deister, Diana Kelm, and Sarah Murray. Just big kudos to all of you and thank you to the two of you for taking the time to join me today greatly greatly appreciate it
0: yeah thank you for having us and uh thank you especially to our first author dr olson who wanted to be here but is a busy poem crit fellow and she did so much work on this so thank you
1: fantastic thank you so much oh yeah absolutely it was truly my pleasure Thanks as always to our listeners. You can find this article on gender disparities and critical care procedure training of internal medicine residents on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Scholarly, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day.